Hi, Steve Addison here for the Movements Podcast, the podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we'll hear from Miles Wilson about how to raise financial support for your ministry. As someone raising support who themselves has a generous spirit, there's nothing as unattractive as someone raising support who's very self-focused. So for me, the joy is seeing that light come onto people's heads. I actually need to be the giver. Yeah, I suppose I need to go back a generation to my parents. It was a basic working class family, and not a lot of money at home. But at the very outset of their marriage, my parents had committed themselves to be supportive of mission, to be involved in mission as, as senders and givers. So I grew up with that, that uh, context, uh, enjoying mission, enjoying supporting mission. Our family supported quite a few missionaries, etc. Then, uh, about a year after Phyllis and I were married, we ourselves went into supported mission, um, mostly because of my parents had prayed us into it. It was kind of an expectation we would do that, which was great. But then I went to the other side of the fence. I became the receiver and struggled with the emotions of that. I loved the giving, was uncomfortable as the receiver. And this confused me a bit. Uh, so I thought, I, I want to find out what does God's word say. So I spent about three years trying to work out from scripture, what are the principles of giving and receiving that helped me base this on? Uh, realizing things like it is more blessed to give than receive. Therefore, as a missionary, I'm going to always be at the low end of that blessing, but the supporters are doing fine. Started talking to others about it informally, realized very few people had, had a good biblical grasp on what this meant, and many struggled emotionally with the process. So increasingly began teaching it, talking about it, training groups, and that would have started almost 40 years ago, um, but working full-time on it since 1991, uh, doing exactly as you said, helping organizations around the world equip their staff better, both biblically and practically, in this whole area. Certainly, over my, in my lifetime, mission has often sat in what I call the land of just enough. And I look at the need of God's kingdom and think just enough is not enough. Um, and too many families that I know, too many organizations that I know struggle. The, the number two reason that people leave the mission field early is lack of finances. The number one reason is interpersonal relationship difficulties. But the number two reason is lack of, lack of finances. And uh, Satan wins too many battles on this by, by removing people out of ministry because there's not enough money there to help them. Also, from the point of view of the supporters, which is equally important, they have not been equipped to understand what it means to be a true partner in the gospel, as Paul talked about his supporters in, in the church in Philippi. So there's a huge amount of work to do, not so much to get the money, but to get a better understanding, biblically, of what the process is. When I do workshops, I often start off by saying, what are the things that are holding you back? get them to write them down and put them up on a wall and then sometimes I read them back this is your list and I was doing a workshop in Germany uh, some time ago and 
they wrote all the, the, the notes up somewhere in English, somewhere in German. I had enough German to understand them. So after the coffee break, I started reading the list back, and they're all nodding, agreeing, yes, yes, this is my list. When I'd finished the list, I said, no, this is a list from Peru three, three weeks ago. 80% of the issues are going to be the same in every country. Things like, I don't like talking about money. Uh, I'm not sure if my ministry is valid enough. Uh, our church doesn't have a mission focus. Um, it's better just to, to uh, let God provide on a daily basis. Having more than that to bless others would not be right. Also, a mixture of thinking that has not been grounded in the Scripture. And when the thinking like that is affected, and that affects the emotions, that then affects what you choose to do. So for me, the main thing is, how do we touch the heart so that, that the hands can do something better? The highlight is seeing somebody who has come into the training perhaps thinking, how do I get support? Going out thinking, who can I give to? Because generosity is at the heart of support of mission. And too many missionaries hope that other people are generous so they can give to them without first thinking, how can I be generous? So for me, it is successful if a group of people I'm working with become generous first. There is nothing as attractive as someone raising support who themselves has a generous spirit. There's nothing as unattractive as someone raising support who's very self-focused. So for me, the joy is seeing that light come onto people's heads. I actually need to be the giver. Um, it's nothing to do with them receiving, actually, but that's where I get my joy, is seeing the missionary understand that the generosity Jesus applies to them. to explain also. the kingdom of God. He did it by telling stories about people, which we call parables. Well, if that, if that model was useful for Jesus, it's also useful for us. Yeah, when you're sitting down beside someone over the cup of tea, sharing your heart, see, the first thing is make sure you get permission to talk about support before you talk about support. Don't just arrange to meet someone and then try and pull the rabbit out of that with this hidden agenda. Uh, I don't like that happening to me, and I think I, most people would be similar. They don't like being surprised by an agenda. So first of all, make sure the person knows what you're talking about and why you're going to talk about that. Also, you need to be able to tell them why you're asking them. There's 7 billion people in the world. Why did you choose me? And if you cannot actually say, the reason I'd like to talk to you is, and it may be as, as limited as we've been friends for a couple of years, or you were a great help to me when I was in the youth in the church or whatever, if you cannot actually say why you want them to be part of the support team, then don't ask them. Um, when you are then talking to them, be positive. Recognize this is a privilege. This is the king of kings asking you to do something on his behalf and to build a team around you to make this happen. So smile. Simple things. Smile. I would say also rehearse what you're going to say a little bit. Rico Tice from All Souls Church in London has a great saying, which is, the best spontaneity is well rehearsed. Because if you're not quite sure what you're going to say, you will frown, and you will stumble, and you will put the other person in a dis in an uncomfortable situation. So it is useful. I, I don't mean having a script. I'm not a great fan of scripts. But at least to think, this is the sort of thing I want to share with this person. Share your heart Share the passion God has put in your heart. 
If you don't have that passion, don't go. Go back to God and ask him to reawaken it. Don't be hesitant, negative, and apologetic. You know what it's like when someone says to you, I don't want to put you under pressure. That immediately puts you under pressure. So the more you hesitate and are apologetic and are a bit negative about the, 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 the approach, the more it forces the other person to feel sorry for you and want to give out of almost like a begging mentality, oh, this poor person's admission, I better help them. Use positive terminology. Don't say things like, well, in ABC mission, we have to raise support. It's like... You say have to for things like going to the dentist, but not going for ice cream. So if this genuinely is a privilege to be called by the God of the universe to be involved in this kingdom, make sure you use wording that reflects that. Make sure also you're clear in what you're asking them to do. If, for example, I was to say to you, do you want to come on the journey? There's not enough information in that. How long is this journey? Where am I going? Do I need to take an overnight bag? Who pays? Do I bring a passport? Etc. So if you're asking someone to support you, be very clear in what it is you're asking them to do. Now, again, I'm an Irishman, so I do that within my own culture. Uh, different cultures will differ in this, but there needs to be whatever clarity is necessary. That is why I ask people very specifically, please consider giving financially on a regular basis. Please pray Please encourage, and, and as, as clear as I can. You don't want to walk out the door and the person think, I have no idea what he's expecting me to do. That's not helpful. Don't give away the initiative. What often happens is you've thought about this in advance. You go, you meet the person, but this is the first time they've thought about it. So they may not be in a position there and then to reply. So they may need some time to pray about it. Maybe talk to a husband or wife about it, look at their budget, whatever. What often happens is the person you're talking to about support says, leave it with me, I'll get back to you in a few days. It's actually not fair to allow them carry that burden. Because two or three days later, their refrigerator is broken down, one of the kids is sick, there's a problem at work. You know, the normal pressures of life, and they may not remember so I have always found it helpful to leave an opening so that I can get back, to say something like, that's great, if for whatever reason we can't connect in the next couple of days, is it okay if I get back to you? And usually they'll say, oh yeah, but in that case, at least I have the freedom to get back to them. So be positive, share your passion. Uh, it's okay to cry when you're talking to somebody about this, if the passion for those you're reaching is strong enough for that. Tell stories also. Tell stories of people. People don't understand big concepts. When Jesus was asked to explain the kingdom of God, he did it by telling stories about people, which we call parables. Well, if that, if that model was useful for Jesus, it's also useful for us. Tell stories that illustrate the need you're trying to meet and the work that you're doing. Don't get too bogged down in the detail of what you do. Don't say, well, on Tuesdays at 10.30 I do this. Nobody's interested but they are interested in a story where there's been an impact of the kingdom, where, where something has happened or there's been a challenge in the person's life because the kingdom was brought into their world either through what you've done or someone else in your organization has done. And make sure 
that if they decide to support you and walk that journey with you, you treat that with respect. You treat them genuinely as a partner. You communicate with them often. You've, you, you don't set a limit on how much they want to be involved. They choose to set that themselves. But give them the opportunities and freedom to be as involved and as interested and, and as committed as they can be. So be yourself. I suppose to summarize, say be yourself. Don't try to be somebody else. Go there, sit there, share your heart, explain what God's called you to do, ask them if they want to come with you in the journey, be clear about what that is, and make sure there's an easy way for them to respond, and make sure you follow that up where you need to. A three-course meal I'm offering, not an a la carte menu. They can go a la carte if they want, but I'm offering the three-course meal. First of all, organizations and missionaries themselves looking in the process, on the process as about getting money rather than building partnerships with people. And that leads then to the second one, which is not understanding that developing a team of supporters around you is in itself a spiritual ministry. It's not about just getting the money in. It is in itself about a spiritual ministry. Sitting with someone over a cup of tea, sharing what God's put in your heart, asking if they would like to come on the journey with you is as much part of, of that person's ministry as anything else that they are called to. So, firstly, thinking of it just being financial. Secondly, not understanding that it is a spiritual ministry. And thirdly, I would say dishonoring the supporters by not treating them as true partners. I, again, I learned, I learned this from my parents. Their view in life was they are called by God to send. That is a calling that they fulfilled through their entire lives, through what they, what they did and how faithful they were in doing that. Paul said to his supporters in Philippi that he thanked God every time he thought of them or because of their partnership in the gospel. We think we can get away with sending a dear friend's letter three or four times a year and call that partnership. That's not partnership. That is, a, that is dishonoring and actually quite insulting to the, to the supporter who is in themselves an integral and equal part of the process of the Great Commission. So if we could deal with those three things, it would be a great help. Understand that it's not about the money, it's about building a team of people. It is in itself spiritual ministry, and the partners are equal with the missionaries themselves. Uh, on that last one, sometimes if I'm talking to a mission, I will say, so many people are in your mission. And they ask me to clarify it a bit. I don't know how many people are in their mission. They almost always tell me the number of missionaries. They never tell me the number of supporters. That tells me they do not truly view them as partners. That's the sort of thing we need to deal with. For me, because it's building a team of people, I want to make sure that that's the right person to be part of my support team, that it is, it is meeting a need in their life. I, like I said, they're a partner with me. So I want to make sure that's a partnership that works. I suppose it's a bit like dating and getting married. You're just not going to choose any girl that happens to be around. It's a partnership. You better get it right. So I will want to have a discussion about that. I will want to see what's in their heart. Is what I'm involved in meeting a need in their life to be involved in the work of the kingdom? It may be a, a, a need that's a bit of a tangent in their life, but unless I can see there's some, something in what I'm doing 
is something they want to be part of, then I think I've got a problem if I pursue that. Assuming that that is determined, that yes, they would like to be part of what I'm doing, then I would always ask them to support us in three ways. Financial support, ideally on a regular basis, and we would usually say our commitment to them is we will use their financial support to the best of our ability to extend God's kingdom. We ask them for prayer because it's a spiritual minefield out there. And if you walk out in Christian ministry without adequate prayer around you, you are in massive danger. And I think, again, many missionaries don't effectively keep their supporters up to date with things to pray for. So they're putting themselves at danger in that. So ask them for prayer. And thirdly, encouragement. Um, personally, I get lonely in what I do. I do travel a lot. Uh, and it just is tiring and can be lonely and can just get a bit discouraging. So, so we ask for three things. It's not an or, it's an and. It's, we need financial support and prayer and encouragement. If they want to choose one of the three instead, that's fine. But that's not what I ask for, because I need all three. And over the years, we have found people respond. We've also found those who give are more likely to pray. And the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And we find that in mission too, that those who put their treasure into us, we get their heart. Similarly, those who we support in mission are the ones we're more interested in and will pray for. It's not absolutely true, but it's generally true that those who give are more likely to pray. They're also more likely to encourage. So it is a package. It's a bit, it's a bit like a three-course meal I'm offering, not an a la carte menu. They can go a la carte if they want, but I'm offering the three-course meal. Financial support, prayer, encouragement. If you did not grow up in a home utterly committed to giving into God's kingdom. Make sure your children do not say the same. My parents were married in 1946. They were both Christians. And within a year of being married, in 1947, they were asked by a friend of theirs if they would go to China as missionaries with what was then China Inland Mission. As they explored this request, they realized God's call on their lives was to send not to go. It's not that they were choosing an easy option. This was a clear understanding. What God is asking us to do is to send. So they made a commitment at that time that that's what they would do with their entire lives. They listed on a piece of paper everything they owned, which for a young married couple, just after the end of the Second World War, it wasn't very much. My parents were very working class people. My, my father was an electrician, worked with the local power company. My mother had worked as a, as a waitress in a, in a, a cafe in a bus station. Um, it's a very basic economic life. So they listed everything they owned and committed it to the extension of God's kingdom through mission. And then they realized something was missing. And they put at the end, and our children not yet born. And committed all of their future children to go into mission. They didn't tell us that when we were young. That that would be spiritual blackmail. You know, we've told God you'll be a missionary. But my sister, the third in the family, when she made her decision to go into mission work over 25 years ago, that's the point. They said, this is what we prayed for. So I grew up in a family of compulsive givers. It's the only way to describe it. 
Um, when missionaries were back on home assignment, sometimes they would stay with us and we'd kind of squeeze up in the bed, all the kids would be there. When I was young, the, the, the pen pals that I had were the children of missionaries in different countries around the world. Uh, I, I grew up with huge respect and about missionaries and joy about mission because of my parents. Uh, our family home, eventually my parents were able to buy a home. In, in our culture, buying is more economical than renting. So they were able to buy a home. But it was the family decision that on the death of my parents, we would not inherit that. But that would be used for the continuing help of, of mission. So if you ever go to Islamabad, right in Islamabad, there is a rest home for missionaries that was paid for by the proceeds of the sale of my parents' home when they died. So that's what I grew up with, that delight of giving the, the importance of particularly cross-cultural mission was what was mostly on their heart. And that continued all their lives. And con it continues still, I suppose, in the three of us in mission. It's interesting that my parents chose to send as a call of God, but all three of us as children chose to go. But that is because my parents were the senders. So that was it. I, I hugely honor them, respect them. And the one thing I would say is that if you did not grow up in a home utterly committed to giving into God's kingdom, make sure your children do not say the same. Immediately she said, no, I wouldn't. I said, okay, in that case, you're far more convinced about living in support than you think you are. Personal support model is not the only model. It is one of a number of models, but there are advantages with it. Uh, first of all, those who give the money are, most, are mostly those with some relational connection with the missionary. Therefore, are more likely to pray. If you're in mission and you're simply paid from some central pot somewhere, you don't know who the giver is. They don't really know who you are. So there's a, there's a spiritual disconnect there. Um, it also builds huge faith skills, all sorts of things. If you're going to sit face to face with a friend over a cup of tea and say, this is what God's put on my heart. I'd love to see if you'd come with me on the journey. That very discussion forces you to think lots of things. Am I really called to this? How confident am I in this call? Am I confident God has the, the, the provision available for me through these people? How do I feel talking to someone I know about what I'm doing? Because that brings a vulnerability. All the things that are important in Christian ministry to learn, you will learn best sitting down having that, that conversation over a cup of tea. It, it's, it's almost like everything you need to know about ministry, all the skills you need to develop, all the aspects you need to be convinced about, tend to focus on that one conversation. It also, it actually is one of the most financially secure ways of living. Missionaries don't understand this. Most of my supporters have one source of income, their job. If that goes, everything goes. Phyllis and I right now have 34 sources of income, our regular supporters. If one of those has to stop, it's actually easier for me to find a new supporter than it is for my supporter to find a new job. So people talk about living by faith. Actually, in reality, the supporter is the one who has to live by faith. He's got only one source of income. Similarly, if you work for a mission and are funded from central funds and there's a crunch and a crisis financially, 
there may be a red line through your name. Not because your ministry isn't important, but the central funds aren't there to pay for it anymore, and I see this quite often. If I am responsible for developing the support myself, and I, then the budget will not be the thing that will make me stop. Yes, there are, there are pressures on it, and there are challenges in the process, uh, but it certainly is an excellent one, an excellent way forward. I was talking to someone just the other day who's struggling with the whole process of living on support. They're just emotionally, they're, they're struggling with it. And I said, let me ask you a question. If a major donor came along, one person, and said, I will give you 200% of your budget every year for the entire time you're in mission, it's guaranteed, it's already in a bank. You just have to draw it every year. The only condition is you have to give up all the relationships you have with existing supporters and not contact them again. Would you take it? And immediately she said, no, I wouldn't. I said, okay, in that case, you're far more convinced about living in support than you think you are. Because it is highly relational also. Our best friends now are people who we first met when they started supporting us. So it is the, the, the benefits are multifaceted. They are for the individual. Also, the person who gives knows my friend is actually the person who's using this support. I will pray for them. I will help them. I'll get engaged with that. It is highly relational. And while it can be challenging at times, is actually far more secure than simply being paid from central funds. Supporters are the sort of people, if they come into our church today, we'd think, wow, what are they doing here? If that was good enough for Jesus, then who am I to argue that it's not good enough for me? In Luke chapter 8 talks about this. It says, um, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The twelve were with him, and also the women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. I think we sometimes forget, we need to step back and think, okay, Jesus had this earthly ministry where he told all the disciples, give up your normal job and come work with me, come with me. Like happens in mission these days, you know? Come, give up the job, come work with me. Yeah, but how is that all going to be resourced? Well, this, this Luke chapter 8 passage tells that. It was resourced by this group of women. There's three that are named. Susanna, we know, know nothing else about. Obviously, the original readers would have known who Susanna was, but Luke didn't feel he needed to explain anymore, so they would have known. But Mary Magdalene and Joanna, we know a little bit about. And it's, it's fascinating. First of all, here is the second person of the Trinity, for whom and by whom all things were made, in human form, being willing to be provided for by others, but not just any any others. I think if I had been coming up with the plan, I'd have gone to the temple to find the highly respected, deeply God-fearing men who were praying that the Messiah would come, and I would put together a team to support him. What does Jesus do? He takes people at the very fringe of society and allows them to be his supporters. Joanna, wife of Chusa, manager of Herod's household, because of her connection with Herod, she would not have been allowed in the woman's court of the temple to pray. 
because that, that half-Jew collaborator with the Roman occupiers, etc. Mary Magdalene, because of her social background and what, what she had been involved in of demonization and perhaps even prostitution, she would have been frowned on and socially would not have been able to come to the woman's court of the temple to pray. Jesus' supporters are the sort of people, if they come into our church today, we'd think, wow, what are they doing here? Yet those are the people who supported them. They were people in whose life he'd had an impact. They were people who appreciated him, who wanted to, to provide for him, not in payment for what the, he had done for them, but so that he would be able to be free to reach more people with the message of the kingdom. And what's really intriguing, if you forward, fast forward a little bit to the tomb, who shows up at the tomb? Joanna and Mary Magdalene. Where are the disciples, the staff members, if you would, we may say? They're all hiding. Because for them, their relationship with Jesus was to do with their job. But they were already arguing who would have the top job in the kingdom. Remember James and John's mother came and said, look, could my two guys have the top jobs in, in, in the cabinet? So the death of Jesus killed the future for them. There was nothing else. They were confused, afraid, and hiding. The women, however, loved Jesus because of what he had done for them in the past. So they still wanted to come and help him, in, in this case, to, to embalm a dead body. Both the disciples and the women should have understood about, about the resurrection, yes. But the disciples certainly should have understood. So who got the message of the resurrection? The staff members are the supporters. The supporters. These women ran back said to the disciples, he's alive. They said, don't be silly, you stupid woman, he's dead. They said, no, he's alive. And eventually, eventually, Peter and John came. But they only saw an empty tomb. They didn't see a risen Lord at that point. I just love the fact that the relationship Jesus had with those who supported him was such that he entrusted the message of the resurrection to them, not to his own team members at that point. And I think that, you know, so in heaven today, there is a 33-year-old man at the right hand of the Father in a resurrected body who knows what it feels like to live on a support basis. He was tempted in all ways just like us. So when I feel bad about it, when I feel, oh, I don't want to do this, or, or when I feel too proud to live by the gifts of others, particularly people perhaps below me socially who have less than I have, I need to go and talk to Jesus and let his Spirit help me. Because he's done this. Remember in the temptations, one of the temptations was provide for yourself miraculously. Turn these stones into bread. And Jesus proved on many occasions that he could have done that. But for his own normal daily living, he was willing to be dependent on a group of people who knew about his ministry, respected his ministry, in their case had been impacted by the ministry, and wanted to ensure that others also felt the touch of God's kingdom through his ministry. If that was good enough for Jesus, then who am I to argue that it's not good enough for me? Well, thanks to our good friends at Accelerate for making that interview available. We've got plenty more at uh, acceleratetraining.org. If you're enjoying the Movements podcast, why don't you spread the word by logging on to Facebook and finding us at movements.net. And that's where you can either follow along or uh, give us a like 
and that will help get the message out to a wider circle of people about the Movements Podcast.